left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing. Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, You can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeBest.com to get started today. You want to talk about the economic climate. Storage does well in a down market because people are distressed. That whole, the D's of storage, death, distress, displacement, divorce, all those things are occurring in recessions as sociologically that happens with trouble with money. But people are very picky where they're going to go into these storage units, but they're looking at their credit card statement. I can't pay $150 a month right now, so we're getting move outs right away. So occupancy is still growing, but revenue growth is not. So that's, but if you can maintain occupancy and compete, then when the market turns and there's more expendable income, boom, then we can start to raise those rents even more aggressively. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. 
I'm excited today to have Jeremiah Boucher with us. He is the founder and CEO of Patriot Holdings and manages a $350 million portfolio of alternative commercial real estate assets with a focus on self-storage, manufactured housing, and industrial. He is also the author of Finding Your Edge, How to Win at the Game of Commercial Real Estate Investing. Jeremiah, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Yes. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Thanks for being on. The first question I like to ask is just, what's your journey? How did you get into real estate? Then how did you get into being an operator? And and then how did you figure out these asset classes that you're in? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll keep it condensed. And, and I go a lot into it in the story there in the book. But essentially, you know, I grew up not knowing anything about real estate investing. My parents aren't in it. My dad has a small paving company. He started when I was a kid. I moved from New Hampshire to Vegas with my mom when they got divorced. So what I really, I had to bootstrap everything. So I really was uh, quit college, played some rugby and was just a party animal and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and caught that whole real estate boom in 2001, two, uh, right after 9-11 and where it really kicked in in, you know, four, five and six. But I was really living, you know, like the big short movie, you know, buying those single family homes, selling them quickly, was in a hot market in Vegas and then, you know, got caught holding the bag, you know, with these assets that were overpriced and took a hit, you know, got foreclosures, you know, uh, tax liens defaulted on credit cards. You know, it's just just completely got wiped out because I essentially didn't have an edge. And I'm sure a lot of these people on here could relate to that, where if you live through that time, I was in my mid 20s. Uh, it was a big hit for me, but it taught me a lot about, you know, having a competitive edge. And I knew along the way, you know, when I, you know, just like the movie kind of plays around in kids with, but when a stripper has four or five rental houses, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a, definitely a problem there, but it's, you know, and it consistently, not just one, I mean, like all of them. So that, you know, right. that to me was like, okay, I know, you know, when the valet guy's a realtor and so is the, 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 uh, you know, everyone on the strip. I don't have an angle, so I essentially lost everything there. But I knew, you know, manufactured housing, I just, I read a, a simple course online on the mobilehomeparkstore.com, and uh, and I looked at commercial, this this company called uh, Commercial Academy, and I said, wow, man, commercial is where it's at. You know, this is what I really want to do with my life, and I always wanted to be an investor. And so I just dove into it, had no money, no credit, and reached out to the owner of that mobile home park store. His name's Dave Reynolds. And uh, I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm a young kid. I, I don't know what the hell I'm even doing, but I'm passionate about mobile home parks. And he told me, you know, well, if you want to get in this business, you got to find deals. Just like everyone on here knows, you got to get out there and hustle. So I hit the phones for 10 years. I sourced to him and, and Dave, uh, him and his partner there, 100 plus deals, um, generated a lot in fees, generated some equity, learned the business, every angle of it, every single part of it uh, on CapEx management, deal flow, the whole deal. And uh, exited, swapped out of those assets uh, after the 10 years in 2016, and then we ended up being able to take what equity I had into my own assets in Nevada, having five mobile home parks, and I was able to learn the operation side of things and have my own management team. And then in 2019, before COVID, I sold and had a you know my validating $10 million liquidity event for me, and that was you know, the kind of where what catapulted me to the next phase of along the way, I saw self storage as a valid asset class that was still being uh, mismanaged, overlooked, and and a lot of the mobile home park owners owned some in addition to the parks. 
and I my partners had no interest in storage, so I was able to creatively structure some owner financing deals uh, because we bought their parks in the past, and uh, was able to kind of learn that business. And just so happened, you know, having that strategy of being outside some of the bigger urban markets, um, just being in suburban tertiary locations, uh, being able to bring in some good management efficiencies, and kind of ride that whole model of of the customer really understanding and using storage in a remote way through technology was really able to catapult it where we we went from you know very little assets under management to you know 300 plus and went on a tear and have 70 facilities now where that's my core focus and where i believe in the the short term where i want to be Excellent. That's an amazing story. I want to I want to kind of go back to the beginning. You said you were playing rugby and, and kind of partying a lot, and then then all of a sudden you stumbled into real estate. What 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 was the thing that that told you, or how did you figure out? Hey, real estate's what I want to do. I mean, you could have done a lot of different things, but it seemed like maybe you wanted to run your own business, or what? What brought you to real estate? Yeah, and that's I I articulate that in the book, and it, I share. You know, my grandfather owned his own flower shop. My dad you know, had his own paving company. I always identified with someone that was a business owner, an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how to get into any business because I had no money and my parents didn't have any money. So the challenge for me was, uh, what do I do with my life? And I was a little out of control. So I read a cheesy book called a course that my dad had in his attic. You know, it was called No Money Down by Carlton Sheets. And I was paving for him every summer since I was 13 years old. And I I really... uh, I thought, man, this is it. Like I can get into real estate with no money down. And uh, I still use some of those techniques today. But yeah, that that really was the impetus where I said, wow, this is a real thing in America. This is a beautiful opportunity. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons since then. But that was it. Uh, that, that That's super interesting. So then you you went through and you did the, the mobile home and, and uh, for, for a while. And then you switched. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, why the change of focus? Was it more that you recognized an, an opportunity with self-storage or did you recognize maybe a coming downturn with mobile homes or you thought there was something wrong with that asset class or are you still kind of bullish on both? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, for me, because as a emerging sponsor, but at the time, just, just an investor that was trying to learn the craft, over that 10-year period, I saw values continue to accelerate. And even when I went on my, my own in 2016, you know, there was a couple-year window where I was uh, you, still sourcing deals off my database and building the relationships you know, in person and over the phone with all these sellers. I started to see the values with c- the competitors driving up these you know, per-pad costs, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 dollars a pad, you know, rivaling apartments. And I thought to myself, now knowing the actual operation side of the business, there's ticking time bombs underneath these assets. I mean, I've dealt with them all, you know, sewer lagoons, sewer treatment plants, septic systems, water lines that are 50 years old, uh, outdated lo- uh, logistical functioning of the park, meaning like the size of the lots don't e- aren't even conducive to new homes. Roads are just in disrepair, electrical. So that's a big thing of just me saying, wow. Uh, from Warren Buffett, you know, being the teacher is 
these assets that may generate lots of free cash flow on the balance sheet have a ton of capex just waiting <laughs> to be to to be needed to in order to continue the life of this asset and i said i'm stepping away i took some hard lessons luckily made my investors whole but didn't want to go through that again by being allured by one park owned home income right where it looks like on the top line you get lots of income from these rental homes which was an absolute nightmare to manage to, you know, on the back end, on the expense side, like, wow, there's a lot more repairs and maintenance that I had no idea needed to go on. So the yields were okay. too low. I just was right. like, I'm not willing to take that risk anymore. And that's why I pivoted where the CapEx expense for storage, you know, was very manageable. And I grew up paving. So I understand, you know, soils, w water drainage, uh, the, the amount of cost to get rid of some of the challenges on this asset. And that's what, to me, you know, made me want to jump into that, that asset class. Now, it was a whole other animal learning how to manage that. That's a very hands-on management asset. But, uh, but the opportunity shifted me into that different direction. And so, you know, self-storage, that, that's the focus now. And when people talk about self-storage, you know, the first thing they say is, well, it's great in a down market. And it's also pretty good in a up market and it's great in a stable market, right? So it's always great. Um, but I've talked to a couple of large self-storage syndicators now who are saying this might be changing that, you know, no one knows what where the economy's going, but there's some people that are forecasting a, a mild recession, others a major recession. Is self-storage going to get through this okay? Have you seen anything that would change your mind? How are you looking at self-storage today? Yeah, it's a great question too. As any investor that specializes in commercial real estate, you know, just like I said in my book, that you're finding your edge. Like, what is our angle? What is our edge as a private equity firm that's not that cannot compete with billion dollar capital funds that have really low cost of capital. So there is seasons to this. And I would say, yes, there's a season right now in storage where you, assets were bought at a premium price and there is no more room for appreciation in even stabilized and non-stabilized assets. So true operators have to get their hands dirty and operate. And a lot of the fund models don't make money with just operations. They have to keep acquiring or developing. And I understand it intimately. But for me, I, I consciously decided not to have to raise tons of capital to, in order to run the business model. But what I'm really targeting now with this asset class is you just got to get back to the fundamentals of the, the need in America is still here. I mean, Price, if you look at the, the demographics as, as a complete macro, 30,000 square uh, linear view down on, on this asset class, people are running out of space because real estate prices are high. Rents are going to continue to accelerate. People keep consuming more goods and people have nowhere to put them. So, and now even to the transient nature of, of our society in general, people are not, not having families. They're just waiting to have families later in life. And they are very, very, uh, interested in moving jobs in places and career. And they want to do what they want to do. So I believe the macro trend is there, even sitting with the biggest REITs in the country at the storage show here last week in Vegas. So they, you know, I'm bullish, but in the meantime, the trend is it's overpriced. The projections are way too high. And you have to get realistic on what's the true cost to operate this asset with the marketing competing against the big boys. And what is your true cost to actually build and buy right now that yield 
is is more sobering. There, what, there's no more 20% revenue growth like the years of COVID year over year, 40% in rent growth those years on a, a public level, a national level. That's gone. There's no more bailouts. So that's that's why I'm saying you have to be very careful and slow down with storage right now. Okay. And, and you, you said operators now are going to have to operate. <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? I mean, in terms of um, in any asset class with the market, the tide of the market where everybody was just becoming successful by buying any piece of property because rates compressed, so much capital was chasing so few assets because the capital got flooded in the marketplace. I'm saying now is you have to compete and serve the customer, the tenant. The, the person that's actually utilizing your property. So if it's some small businesses or it's our residential renters or home, uh, homeowners that need storage, you have to be good at Google AdWords. You have to be good at the marketing appearance. You have to actually offer discounts and concessions for people to get in there. You got to be competitive with your rates. So I mean, you have to actually get good at managing the properties. Third-party manager or not, you have to asset manage. So and adapt, right? And be careful on how much you're spending on CapEx versus what's absolutely necessary where it does need to be paved. You have to have nice, safe lighting and you have to have fencing. And so these things are, you know, people are being very picky where they put their money because we're seeing, if you want to dig deep into storage, more move outs than we have ever seen, but we're seeing a ton of move ins as well. So if you want to talk about the economic climate, it, storage does well in a down market because people are distressed. That whole D, the, the Ds of storage, death, distress, displacement, divorce, all those things are occurring in recessions. There's a sociologically that happens with trouble with money. But people are very picky where they're going to go into these storage units, but they're looking at their credit card statement. Oh, I can't pay $150 a month right now, so we're getting move outs right away. So occupancy is still growing, but revenue growth is not. So that's, But if you can maintain occupancy and compete, then when the market turns and there's more expendable income, boom, then we can start to raise those rents even more aggressively. And this is exactly what the REITs do, where they have 10 guys from MIT running numbers on what's the price we need to pay per customer. And then how do we ratchet up the rents to meet our projections? Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48equity.com backslash invest. So how do I know as an LP investor, if I'm investing with an operator who has just been coasting along and, and given me great returns the last five years because it was easy, 
rather than an operator who recognizes that times have changed and they're going to really dig in and be that operator you talked about. How, how does a, an LP kind of determine that, especially if they've been investing with the same self-storage company for a while? Yeah, I think the big thing for the LP on the outside, and this is tricky for any LP to, to understand what's under the hood for the business or the opportunity uh, that they're investing in, the property they're investing in. I think it's it, just listen to the feedback and watch the quarterly reports. Like, you know, if, if number one, you don't have any communication and they don't address any of this because they don't even highlight the metrics, that's scary to me because, and I'm an LP in other companies and, and property as well. If I don't, if, if I don't know, if they're not reporting to me what's going on at the asset and some of the industry challenges, then uh, that's, I don't think they know. I don't even know if they're making the right decisions in order to, to do the things that are going to deliver returns. And, and it's, so secondly, then looking at those reports and actually seeing, you know, how the assets are operating and if they're not addressing, what are we doing to change that? So say, you know, distributions aren't there. Uh, okay. Wh where are you then? And then wh where are we, what are you doing in order to turn this around and why is that the case? So I think communication is critical right now and if they and if they don't have a history of communication which I know I've been there you know I had very little resources in the beginning as a team just finding out from them you know in the past show me how you got through some of these challenges and if they haven't been through them then then that's a problem because they don't even know how to navigate through these hard times yeah, and communication for me is number one. I always test that thoroughly before I send the the wire because, you know, I always say if they're not going to communicate with me before they have my money, they're certainly not going to once they have my money. And so and so that's a big thing that I look at. You know, when we're talking about self-storage, you know, people are a, a lot of times mentioning value add. Can you tell us what what does that mean exactly in self-storage? Because, you know, we understand it a lot better, I think, sometimes in multifamily what the value add is. So what is value add and does that still work in this market? Yeah. Uh, it, it, one last point on that last question and then I'm definitely with value add. The other thing I would do is look at the team. Like, I don't want to just talk to the guy that can talk really well about the investment opportunity. I want to talk to someone else. Do you have anybody that's assisting you? Because in any business, if it's a one-man show, that you're leaving a lot of vulnerability to whatever happens to that person's personal life. You know, it affects right. your investment. So that that's the point on that. In terms of um, value add, uh, for us, it means something different to everyone. But to us, it means... Uh, existing mismanaged assets that typically eight or nine out of 10 occurrences have deferred CapEx. So it's a, for, and for us, uh, having a, a, a quality location with number one, meeting good visibility and number two in a market that has uh, enough demand, meaning enough population, but yet not a, a ton of supply. So there's not 20 square feet per person in that market of storage. And there's somewhat barrier to entry. So, you know, your biggest enemy in storage, if I looked at a project to invest in passively, it's like, how easily can someone else go build storage here? And, uh, and, and I'm, the way that I would look at that is not only the town restrictions, but the economics of it. Like, can someone come in here and build at the current price of, you know, 75 bucks a foot or, or more and plus land and still be able to pencil it out and, and beat you up? It's not an e easy formula, but it's something I would look at. So with value add, what I would would, would urge people to, uh, to understand is you, you have to have good quality bones of an asset. So value add for us is not conversion. 
So it's not buying a Kmart or, or an empty big box and then converting it from nothing to storage. That, that's actually development. Any way you slice it, just because it has a box doesn't mean anything. There's no pre-existing business. So the proof of concept right. to us has to be there. There has to be a decent storage already there that's conducive to people getting in and out pretty easily. And then secondly, there has to be an edge or an advantage for us. Our, our highest value add edge is if you can get additional land on top of the existing storage that you have, and it comes with the, the cost basis of the property you're buying, that's, that's huge for us because once you already get to 90, 92% stabilized occupancy, it's time to build more units and you already have insight into what the customers want. Do they want big units? Do got commercial guys want units? Do, do they need tiny, tiny units for apartments? So for us, that's, it's expanding onto existing sites. And then obviously, it's making the improvements. You know, we do the same blueprint, lighting, fencing, paving, you know, cameras, signage. And so we make a better product. And then lastly, you command a better price for that product. But not only commanding that price, you got to get the word out. There's a whole other element. You got to market it right. And you have to actually have really good quality customer service. People pick up the phone and solve the problem and offer good value, meaning good concessions, easy process to get in and out of, you know, with your billing. So all that stuff has to be pulled together to give, you know, you or I or my, our, our parents or anyone else that wants to use the business. They actually, it's, it needs to be a painless process, which storage is always uh, a nuisance. You know, it's a, people don't, it's a stressful deal to do. Yeah, and, and you mentioned um, part of it is is having additional land that you can build on. So when you go through the process of trying to find a property, is that a requirement that you want to have land? And then and then if you do find it with that land, do you build that into the pro forma, or is that here's the pro forma for the existing, and then if things go well, we have the option to develop this other part? It depends. So you know, with our value add deals. So I have six acquisition guys and underwriters on the team that we look at the number one metric that we need to measure an asset by that gets to the heart of if it's what we grade it as an opportunity is unlevered yield on cost or stabilized cap rate on cost. So if, if we buy it, and you know the best situation possible is if you can buy uh, you know a fifty thousand square foot storage facility for five million bucks, and after the first twelve to eighteen months of making some improvements, and we raise the rents, and we have a couple hundred grand in, in capex, you know what is that stabilized cap rate? And if we're at an eight or eight and a half or more, eight and a half is the target. Then we know even if cap rates expand and and it's in markets that have strong demand and strong economics of demographics, that we're going to be safe. That eight and a half unlevered yield on cost or stabilized cap rate on cost hits our metric where our investors are going to hit their double digits on their return. They're going to get a quarterly distribution. Now, it depends on how heavy that lift is to get bad tenants out and new ones in by the time they get those distributions. But, but on the flip side, we do include in markets that we know there's short supply and there's that extra land that we have to build. That is, a, that is a requirement where we're under the radar of some of the bigger companies where we can buy a 15,000, 18,000 square foot facility and we can add 20,000 square feet on there and they're, they're 100% full, their rates are low, the supply is low. And if we can get to that eight and a half, you know, nine unlevered yield, it, we do ex that. That is a function of the deal, and the expansion needs to be calculated in, in that. But you have to be in markets where the rents 
justify it. It's a funny thing because storage is such a commodity. You know, you buy these pre-manufactured buildings from, you know, Wisconsin or down south. You know, you better for us, we stay in the northeast because you can get 12, 13, 14 dollar annual achieved rents. And if I were down in Missouri in some markets or I was in northern Nevada in a rural market, you're struggling to get ten dollars a foot, six, seven, eight, nine dollars. Same building, almost same cost to build, but no return on investment. So it has to check those boxes. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Northeast, right? That because that's where you're mainly operating. And you know, regardless of asset class, when we're talking about real estate syndications, you know, we're usually talking about the growth states in the South or the Southwest. So, talk to me about you know the Northeast, New England. Why there, and and what is the you know because you you want population growth, job growth, all those things. Do you have those in New England, or are there other things that make those markets work for you? I, the fundamentals are very important. And, you know, growth is ideal for storage. Don't get me wrong. But where you have a, a, a region of the country where there's a, a few things of why I chose to go back there. Number one, I had to pick a path. I had to pick a path where, you know, at this stage, storage is a very geographical dependent asset class where you, know, you need to know about your customer. You need to know, uh, uh, their patterns and habits in terms of if they're willing to spend the type of money it's going to take on storage and they have the the dispendable income or expendable income. So for me, that, that market had a few key items. And number one, it was, we might not have population growth, but there is a very strong, stable, educated job market. And there's a lot of companies that are never leaving. There's specialized manufacturing and there's, you know, the biggest universities, I think seven out of the, the 10 in the world are six or seven out of, out of the 10 in, in the globally recognized universities in the region. And this creates a strong, solid workforce that people have. Number one is uh, income growth. So for us, is we have very small growth. We're not losing population, but there's income growth over time. And for us, that directly correlates to how our assets perform on every level, mobile home parks and storage. And then secondly, it's the barriers to entry are high for many reasons, but mostly because uh, it's not Texas, it's not Oklahoma. You can't go in and just build, pull a building permit and build. You have to go through a series of, of uh, requirements through these towns. And we have strong relationships with our engineer and our construction vendors and our in-house construction understanding the nuances of these different markets. So for us, it was, you cannot flood the market here. And we have good population, good revenue growth, high cost of housing. So those things for us, and you don't have a lot of swings up and down. So, you know, not like Vegas or Florida, I've been through it, you know, and I think they're great markets, but man, I got hit hard because you bought on projections that you thought were never going to end. And these markets, if you look at are very stable over time for those reasons I shared. Uh, that, that's great. I always find it interesting when you find an operator who's who's doing something different in a new in a market that isn't typical because that's you know that's just a competitive advantage, right? And, and probably fewer people, fewer competitors go up there because they don't know it as well, and they're just always looking for the certain type of growth. So I think that's that's really interesting. And you know, we've been talking a lot about self storage, so I want to pivot a little bit here. Um, you know, you're involved in other asset classes. You're also an LP. You said. So how do you how do you pick the right asset class you know for for any environment but specifically for today's environment with all the uncertainties how how does someone pick what asset class either if you're an operator and you want to go into something new or if you're an LP and you're just trying to figure out what what's the best place to go how, how, give us some insight into that 
Yeah. You know, I, I, I keep mentioning the book, but I really wrote it. So I shared there's different quarters. Like I related it to football. I'm a huge football fan. So like there's four quarters of an investing career. And if I'm in my early quarters, the first and second quarter, you know, I, I got to get a lead. Like I have nothing to lose, you know, especially if you're up against the, the monsters and giants that we compete with on a, as an investor or LP. So in the beginning of my career, I was very aggressive in terms of what I was willing to do, you know, invest anywhere, uh, buy almost any asset class. So uh, I think it's really based on people's personal capital strategy, capital allocation strategy, and their kind of diversity of their portfolio and asset allocation. So if, if you're a younger guy and you, you got to make big returns because you, you, know, ec- you want return on equity, you want your equity multiple, keep doubling and tripling your money every five years then that, that strategy is going to be quite aggressive where you better be hands-on with finding the deal off market. You better you know, be able to create some value by building a management company or a construction company or something where you're adding a lot of value to that asset. I don't think you can ever go wrong with multifamily, but you can get lured into deals that are garbage because of you, you're just uh, disillusioned by the mirage that multifamily always works all the time. You got to really right. go understand, right, your tenant and what you're doing to add the value to the asset. So I would say look at first is your, you know, your profile for risk and your profile for how much time and energy. Is this my core business? And am I willing to take everything I got into this core business? Or is this a secondary business and an investment for me where, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice right now getting an 8 or 9 or 10% cash on cash return. And I'm okay with the 3 4 5% return. But I'm gonna, I have an asset that's going to, you know, it's a B-class asset that's not going to kill me over time. So, I mean, it's a good question, Jim, but I would say, you know, what I'm doing and I'm always looking five years ahead and I think every good investor does that. So for in our life of our funds are five years. So I want to know, you know, one, what is, what am I, what can I position myself in now with not only my capital, but my resources? Because my only true leverage is the people that I have. I, it's only me now. I mean, like I can't do any more than, than what I'm doing. I can't work one more hour. Like it is maxed out. So it's just people and systems. And my, my strategy around that is what dictates what they do. So I do really like for my personal ambitions is the small bay industrial space where we're building and so we've acquired a few, but mostly building because of it's very similar to storage uh, metal buildings that that are conducive to as small as 750 to 1,000 square feet tenants up to you know 10,000 square foot tenants. But typically it's a two to 3,000 square foot tenant profile that target, you know, the contractors, the e-commerce, the, some of the, even a gym, a service business, they just need incubator space. They need a business park that they can operate this type of business in with very little interference and they have low rent. We offer a bathroom in a, in a build out of an office. And we did some of this one to get some of our storage projects approved. Towns aren't very happy about just having storage that create no jobs. And it really uses, utilizes a lot of commercial land in certain markets that don't have a lot left over. So this was our segue into it. And uh, we were wrapping up our first build. But I think 5 to 10% of the portfolio, I want to continue to do this because it's it very conducive and it aligns with our storage investments, and then see how this shakes out over the next five years. But I think that's uh, it's something that I'm doing differently, where if you look at industrial product as a, in general, and you look at the demographic and customer demands, um, you know, the big Blackstones and all the big developers or the Prologists, we all know they love big warehouse. They don't want to deal with the plumber that, you know, that has 
thousand square feet. So I'm targeting some of these, you know, suburban markets around urban markets where that uh, people really need this product and the yield on cost right now is really good. I can still build it for about 90 bucks a foot, 92 bucks all in with the bathrooms and everything. Plus, you know, I can still get land for less than 10 bucks on the project level. So I'm all in by about a hundred bucks a foot. And this stuff trades at 150 to $200 a foot, depending on the market we build in. That's great. So on, on the industrial, what, what's the exit? Who are you selling to? Is there, you know, because I know like self-storage, you can sell a bunch of self-storage facilities and roll it up to a REIT or something like that. Is that, you, you said the REITs are looking for the big boxes. So what's the exit? Yeah, it's such good, you know, perfect question to ask. Uh, and that is our strategy, aggregate and sell at a accelerated value or enhanced value with so much storage going to one big acquisition team. Um, right now, I think it's the project, you know, that's a possibility, but I would say the market's still way too immature for that. If you do see some of the bigger transactions occurring that uh, Blackstone bought public storage's large uh, business park portfolio, but it's funny because uh, public storage uh, bought Blackstone's storage portfolio. So you're seeing, you know, like you're seeing a lot of these uh, sponsors and even larger funds hyper focus on what they're good at, what they their companies are built for. So for me, I think the exit alone with diversified streams of income, not being subjected to one large tenant that I, you know, I've never had really good luck with this, not one manufacturer, not one uh, large uh, e-commerce company or warehouse. Uh, I think that it opens up the doors to maybe I don't get a sub six cap, but I think on its own, those assets are still going to be valuable in the marketplace because one, there's low cap X. Two, there's Waltz, what, what Wall Street likes to talk about, you know, weighted average lease term, where now that's actually a lot of value to that, actually having shorter term leases because everyone's so mm-hmm. concerned about long term inflation and being tied into long term fixed leases. And then thirdly, it's you got your, you know, diversified tenant stream where, you know, there's a demand for it. People, people keep coming in and using it, but it is very management intense in the, in the sense, not as much as storage, but it is, you know, very hands-on getting tenants in and out. So that's, that's something a sponsor has to look at where that element of the business uh, needs a lot of attention. And that's why I stuck with the Northeast as well, utilizing property managers and my construction team that we already have. And industrial is uh, is fairly popular right now. There, there's quite a few operators, uh, you know, offering syndications in 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 that asset class. So, as an LP investor, how would you recommend we analyze that deal? Now, I'm taking the sponsor out of it for now because you know we know how to vet a sponsor. We we talk about that a lot. But you know, I know how to analyze a multifamily deal. I you know self storage. I'm I'm okay at. But industrial. You know, that's a hard one. So how, how would you recommend someone evaluates a deal that you're presenting or that anyone's presenting in, in the industrial space? Yeah, and, and I myself would even look at it right now. I think that if someone knew what they were doing, like you said, let's let's forget the sponsor. Assume they know what they're doing. So as an LP, I would look because, I, but for me, I want to look at diversified streams of income. So multi-tenant, uh, it's, a, it's a different animal where, um, typically these opportunities aren't going to be in front of us where there's 150,000 to a million square foot building and there's a tenant lined up for that asset. They're not going to be coming to us LPs <laughs> to get money. You know, right. there's plenty of capital institutional and not family office that it's a no brainer. 
So, uh, and then if they're building on spec and it's completely empty, uh, that's very dangerous right now too. Uh, that's a different type of analysis because it's all or nothing. It's zero or one. Either the building is completely vacant or, you know, you lease it up at a certain amount in the market and then you hit the home run and you create a lot of money in value creation. So for me, if I'm looking at, you know, multiple tenants in an industrial building. Well, number one, I think just like I alluded to at the beginning of the call is look at the, the CapEx requirements. Look at the asset itself on the balance sheet and decide to yourself, okay, is this pre-1980? Is this building, you know, early? Because in my markets, there's a lot of buildings built in the 18 and early 1900s. I don't want any part of that because it's just, even if they know what they're doing, I, you know, old mills aren't, uh, there's just too much complexity around that. So forget, I would say 1980 or more is what I would look at. I typically like metal buildings because, you know, the same metal buildings I see built in 1950 and 60 throughout the Northeast still, it's the same technology as they're using today. It, so it's red iron steel. It's, it's a very easy, um, property to manage, but if it's built after that timeline, you should be good to go with no crazy CapEx needs. Uh, I mean, the route you may... So, but beyond that, to underwrite it, what I would look at is just do just do a nice, simple analysis of the market where you look up business parks, you look up, you know, space for lease for small space. You'd be surprised. You don't see anything. Like there's nothing nothing out there. The industry is so new to that where you know how brokers are and everyone on here knows about real estate. Brokers, <laughs> I love them and I hate them because they can make your <laughs> life easy and they can make it hell. And the industrial world is this good old boys club where if you say, hey, let's get this stuff on Facebook, Craigslist, let's get it all over. You know, Let's do an SEO campaign about small, small bay or industrial space or business space for lease. You know, They don't want to deal with the small operator. They hate it. Because they don't get a big commission, it's a short-term lease, and it's not that big much of a space. So I think you know if they can, if you can look at there and see the rents are affordable, and just use your common sense. Like, okay, you know, you need a thousand square feet to start your business. Can any business pay a thousand bucks a month, twelve bucks a foot gross, or even fifteen hundred bucks a month? Like to me, if as long as that market is conducive to that, that's a no-brainer. Like that's my common sense saying, yeah, you know, that someone's gonna want to rent this, and this is a, and this is a pretty good yield. Now, if those rents are three or four thousand a month, that's that's crazy. I don't think that's obtainable by most of the population in markets. So that was for me. It's looking at number one. Long-term CapEx, number two, the assumptions on the rent. And then number three is looking at that rent growth. I mean, obviously, they got to have the right expenses, but you can get triple nets. But I would look at the last manipulator is how aggressive are they on that rent growth? Because if you see on storage, that's where you can really play with the model You know, outside of your exit cap rate. If you jack up those rents year over year, you can make a 15 or 13 IRR look like a 21 IRR. And, and then you just get well farther and farther behind the curve because you can't get those multi compounded rent growths. So I'd be very conservative with the rent growth on those assets. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. That, that was a good explanation. So uh, last question I always ask is what is a great podcast that you listen to? I'm, I'm so into my hobby on the side is health and wellness and I love, you know, biohacking. So I don't, I listen to audible books all the time. I, I don't really listen to podcasts, but I'm, I'm all about, uh, Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, uh, David Sinclair. Like I, I just, I love learning more about human performance. So I would urge everyone 
to uh, check it out because I think that's that part of health and wellness is accelerating so fast on some of the treatments and protocols and supplements uh, that you can do that it it finally pulls away some of the old uh, dogma and jargon about you know you need to be in the gym for an hour and a half every day to be in great shape. You know, it's it's that we're getting so much smarter. And as entrepreneurs and investors, you got your mind, but your body is directly connected to that mind. So you better be able to treat it right and make it perform at a high level so you can have the clarity and the energy to make the right decisions in, in any up and down market. Yeah, I think that's great advice because you can build all the wealth in the world, but if you're not around to use it, what's the what's the use, right? I know. Um yeah. So uh, what's the best way, if listeners are interested, what's the best way they can get in touch with you and, and learn uh, learn more about you and about Patriot Holdings? Yeah. I mean, patriotholdings.com is is there. Tap right in, set up a call with our team. Uh, we have investor concierge. We have CIO that can walk everyone through the investment. And in we have two open funds right now that we're closing at the year end, uh, both focused on storage and, and manufactured housing. And uh, also, you know, buy the book on Amazon. I think it's like 12 bucks or something. So uh, just finding your edge, how to win at the game of commercial real estate. And I would say as an LP, you know, right now, just sign up on for our quarterly earnings calls, or our quarterly fund update calls, and just see, you know, the performance of the portfolio. We review all four funds and you can kind of get a, an understanding of our cadence on what our, our distributions are and how we're handling current market conditions. And they're on there as well. So they can look at the past quarterly updates to get a better idea. That's great advice. Well, thank you for being on the show. This was fantastic. We appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. And, and I, uh, I value what you guys do because I think it's been uh, it's been too much of the Wild West hearing what happened with CrowdStreet and some of these other, you know, syndication platforms yeah. that moved a little too fast and, and stole people's money. So I think that um, this is well needed in the marketplace to vet sponsors. And it's it, you no longer is a get rich quick scheme where you bought an apartment building and made 10 million bucks. So keep doing what yeah. you're doing, man. Keep people honest and keep us doing our job. Thank you. I appreciate that. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. That was a really fun, interesting conversation with Jeremiah. You know, I'm always interested in how people find real estate and how they get into it. He didn't have the purple book, um, but he had the tapes that his dad had in the attic. And he knew he wanted to be a business owner, and he found real estate and went after it. I think that's fantastic. You know, he, um, he switched from, well, he still does manufactured homes, but his focus is self-storage. And part of the reason he switched is because, you know, he, he recognized the CapEx 
uh, capital expenditures from from mobile homes was, was a lot higher, and he had some expertise in social, uh, sorry, in self storage because of his experience with paving, uh, working for his dad. Right, a lot of the paving and ground and earth stuff that he was talking about transfers. So he found a skill that he had from previous life and applied it. So I think that's great. And the the best thing he was talking about is now you need to be a good operator. Right, the last five ten years. You know, everyone was making money. As I always say, I, I, I made money as, and I was a horrible operator. I wasn't a syndicator, it was just for my own account. Um, but we made money even though I didn't know what we were doing. So, uh, you know, right now that's even more reason to focus on quality operators, finding excellent operators. And then he's working in the Northeast and I don't, there aren't very many operators that I know of that give you syndication opportunities out there. So I love that it's a different market. And, you know, he might not have the population growth that you do in the South, southeast or southwest but he was talking about the income income growth is higher and there's some competitive advantages barriers to entry you, there's not a whole bunch of land to build on he knows those markets newcomers aren't going to come in there and know them as well as he does so it's always interesting to find some geographic diversity so we're not always in the same areas and, and that's why um, i think this is an interesting opportunity then he talked a lot about small industrial, and I really thought that was interesting because, you know, we, we see the bigger industrial, but the small industrial, one of the reasons he likes that is because you have multiple revenue streams because you have multiple tenants. And that kind of plays into my thought of, you know, how I do my finances is I like multiple income streams because if one dries up, you have the others. And it's very similar to, to that. And then finally, the last thing that I really liked that he was talking about is he recommended, hey, if you want to know about us, go listen to our quarterly calls and look at all the old ones. And what better way to figure out if this operator is someone that you want to do business with than to actually get on their calls and listen to them before you invest. This is kind of an upgrade of the normal, you know, hey, ask for a report. Well, hey, go sit on a call. See if you like what they're saying. That will help you understand if that's an operator you want to you want to do business with. So really interesting. I'm definitely going to follow Jeremiah. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.